very happy to have Botanica Fabula's Amanda Edmiston with me here today in Restoring the Earth virtual studio. Amanda is a herbalist, folklorist, and storyteller here in Scotland. She has a particular passion for reconnecting people to plants, to the land, to traditional knowledge, and to each other. While she always has a number of fabulous projects on the go, and I'm sure we will touch on, on a number of them today, the focus that I want to have for our chat is on an intergenerational project she led called A Kissed in Time. Welcome, Amanda. Hi, Alette. Lovely to be here and lovely to see you. Thanks for inviting me on. Amanda, before we jump into talking about A Kissed in Time, can we lay the groundwork a bit by having you talk to me about how you came to bring together herbalism, folklore, and stories. Sure. Uh, well, I, I guess I've always been fascinated by plants and the connection between those sort of old wives' tales, if you like, those folkloric little snippets that suggest how we use them. Even, I remember, I mean, I had my first herb garden of my very own when I was about five or six. Um, and I enthusiastically planted things. My, one of the oldest herbal books I've got, my mum gave to me, I think on my sixth birthday. And I still have it, still love it. And one of the things I love most about it is that it doesn't stick to the, the medicinal facts. It doesn't stick to the the uses and, and the sort of, um, the common knowledge, if you like, it, it diversifies. It's by a guy called Donald Law, and and to say he goes off on little tangents is an understatement. It's it's got wonderful things um, from uh, sacred texts. It's got little elements of story. It's got personal anecdotes, and I, and I guess in many ways that and the fact that my uh, maternal grandmother was a, a phenomenally keen gardener and um, would talk about plants to me all the time and my mum did the same. Um, family walks were always filled with information about plants and how we use them and reminiscence. So you know um, the story, one of the earliest stories I remember being told was about my, my granny cycling to school and when times were hard and she couldn't afford um, anything to put between two pieces of bread for a lunch, picking young hawthorn leaves to, to make a sandwich with. Um, so it was it was there from the very start. Um, I did uh, law at university first time round and that didn't sit with me at all. <laughs> I think because I'd, I'd, I'd studied drama initially at A level or you know higher level here in Scotland but English A levels um, and theatre arts. I then went to Santa Fe New Mexico and did Native American art and culture there for a summer and then um, came back, fell into various jobs, decided to go and do a law degree, had imagined I would take up looking at land rights inspired by some of the conversations I'd had in New Mexico and start to work with supporting people to have um, a sustainable 
community and environment-led relationship with the place that they lived and legally support people through that. And I, I, I just didn't find it an available path. Um, all sorts of blocks ha landed and I, I probably didn't have the maturity, to be honest, to push through them or, or maybe the, the, fina the financial uh, stability. So I'd ended up working. Uh, a lot of the time and and not dedicating my time to to law I think it was also too dry I love the storytelling aspects of law but whether or not I had the um the the winning attitude I, a lot of the students I was studying with were incredibly driven and I found that really intimidating um so that didn't happen a few years passed I um spotted uh, you know, and the whole time I, you know, I spent a lot of time outside. I walked a lot. I lo always loved discovering, sort of folkloric sites, herb gardens. You know, that that was my recreation time and exploring um, remedies and uses for plants myself. And then I, I decided to go and study herbal medicine, and I was lucky enough to get a place at the Scottish School in Glasgow, which um, has developed sort of legendary status because as as herbalists Scottish school graduates are <laughs> a little bit a, a little bit of a, a peculiarity in themselves they, they tend the Scottish school ethos was was very much about taking um, a holistic and sort of Gertian um, look at plants and herbal medicine and uh, quite uniquely at the time, it was one of the few courses that encouraged students to uh, blind taste test plants, to uh, sit and draw and focus on the plants and learn about them as an actual plant as opposed to just book learning and research. Um, so for the couple of years I was there, uh, I... I really, really was exploring all sorts of elements of plant use beyond the pure medicinal practice. I I left because uh, I left early. I didn't I didn't complete my degree. That's one of the reasons I'm not in clinical practice is that I didn't I didn't do the final year um, because I, I, I had a baby. <laughs> and um, on my own, uh, with my eldest daughter, we got involved with a lovely parent and child group at the Hidden Gardens in Glasgow's Tramways, which is a beautiful garden, huge number of, of herbal plants, lots of areas to explore. But it was um, created to support a, a quite a multicultural community. And uh, the the idea was to bring people together in this in this beautiful garden. So I started to do some voluntary storytelling um, and I discovered quite quickly that um, the way we use plants and the way we tell stories and in fact being and children, to be honest, and cooking and all the all the sort of very the, the sort of domestic aspects of life um, were a really good common bond, regardless of culture, regardless of social class and background. We can all relate when we start talking about how we cook, how we use plants for health um, and how we share stories. And I started to bring the three aspects together. 
that was fabulous. I really enjoyed it. I sort of found my feet. I My mum mentored me through the process. She's been a storyteller for 30 odd years. Um, and I really found that I had a sort of niche area of practice that I wasn't going to go into ordinary storytelling. I was going to tell the stories where the real way we use herbs and plants generally um, was part of the story. To be fair, I'll be honest with you, Alette, that I, every single plant in a story, I can probably find um, a symbolic, at least, connection into how that's applied in herbal medicine. But I, I think that's probably a deep-rooted part of many cultures in the pre-literate times we told stories to share information. If the fact that you need to bath in meadow sweet to cool a fever or rage is written into story of Kukulin and the Morrigan, then that's a much easier form to learn how to use meadow sweet as a remedy than it is if I give you a huge list of chemical constituents. Um, a a seven-year-old will love a story of a warrior and, a, and then how you, you use a plant they can find in the garden to resemble an element of the warrior's life they won't remember they won't remember the huge long list of salicylic acid etc and and so it kind of it kind of went from there I discovered that loads of people got really excited about it and loved the combination of information I love that you can adapt this to um reminiscence projects which you know I know we'll get into in a minute and you can take it outside you can incorporate a multi-sensory approach uh and I I just love the connection uh, and that and then I took it from there uh, the more people I told the more people wanted me to tell them stories and and you know <laughs> it unfolds from that point Brilliant. Thank you. Um, although I've known you for quite a long time, Amanda, I didn't know all of that background. So it was lovely to hear your story of getting engaged with this process of bringing together folklore, herbs and storytelling. Love it. Um, so I'd invited you particularly today to talk about a project that I know you've done called the Kissed in Time Project. Um, so can you tell me how that came about? Um, probably also explain, since there's lots of non-Scottish listeners, what a kist is, and to highlight, because this is audio, that time here is spelt T-H-Y-M-E. <laughs> I'll pass it on to you, Amanda, to tell us about the project. The project came about, so a, a little follow-on from the life story, uh, I then proceeded to tell stories, um, met my, my husband and we had another baby and we moved from Glasgow to rural Scotland. So the part of rural Scotland we live in um, is incredibly beautiful. Uh, it's almost, almost on the edge of the central belt. So the central belt for the non-Scottish listeners is, is the place where Edinburgh and Glasgow and, and a lot of more of the industrial areas are. And we're kind of on the north border of that as you start to get into the highlands. It's an interesting place because uh, um, in common with a lot of this area of Scotland, it's become a little bit of a commuter belt. We're on that beautiful boundary where it's still easy to reach Edinburgh and Glasgow, major airports, and you can, you know, come here and, 
and relax and get to all the lochs and the mountains. And so it has transformed from being um, a rural community where farming was one of the main sources of industry. Um, there's a distillery that was former mill. There are a lot of there are a lot of former mills in the area. Um, and there have been new build estates have grown up. Um, and I think one of the things I first found, um, having a very, I, you know, I'd had a, my second child by then, and I, having a young baby gives you a bit of a starting point, I will be honest, to talk to people. People, it's like having a puppy. People will talk to you about a baby, and if they don't, well, you find other people that have no one to talk to with a baby, and you talk to them. Um, and inevitably, I, I talk. Um, it, mostly to cover up complete nervousness. So I'm a shy person that talks too much to to compensate. <laughs> um, so I, I, but I discovered quite quickly that some of the older people in the community felt they'd been ignored, and that there were too many people in the area that had moved in that didn't stop in the area. They didn't spend any time in the area. They were here because there was a nice primary school and, you know, they could buy a house and they could commute somewhere else. And I could see that there was a problem in part because this was not as true as they felt it was, to be honest. As is the case in a lot of places, a lot of the new people know more about some of the history than some of the old people that have lived there all the time. But... The there was not necessarily the sharing. Uh, there were the you know there is often a romanticised view of the country. People ignore the fact that farming is uh, stinky, noisy. Um, you know what looks like a beautiful mill that now a distillery it pumps out fumes. There are huge lorries. It's not necessarily a rural idyll. Um, and I felt these people needed to share their stories, that sharing their stories would work. So I took the idea of a, a Scottish kist, which traditionally is a large wooden box that you use to keep all the paperwork, family documents, and in fact, all sorts of peculiar things that you individually felt were important for your family lived in the kist. In many ways, it's so that you can up and pick it up if you need to and take it with you. I thought we'd take a kist and we'd make a sort of important, for me at least, rural chest of stories, of shared information, of objects that we could that we could kind of find a common ground over. And taking the plant law that I loved, um, so hence kist in time, so... It's um it's a very obvious play on words in that it was about sharing uh, stories intergenerationally from the older existing community to the younger one. And I, I worked with local um, uh, history, heritage groups, and I worked with primary school children in the first part of the project. In the second part of the project, uh, which I'll, I'll maybe follow on to, I worked with online heritage groups because we went into lockdown and pupils from the high school, and then some um, work with the new generation of uh, primary school children that had started school since then. And I, I collected stories from one side and shared them with the younger children. 
And then also um, the younger children then made the stories they heard and created art using and remedies using natural materials to retell these stories. And that we kind of fed back and forth between the groups. I also um, incorporated um, sort of law and um, traditional stories that I gathered from the Scottish archive, uh, Scottish, uh, the School of Scottish Studies archive, Tovar and Dalkus. Um, so there are, there are loads of aspects at play that <laughs> it's quite complicated. But basically, we collected plant stories and reminiscence and use and how they're connected to the area and we shared them between older generation and a younger generation and then kept reviewing kept reweaving and adding stories and sharing them back and forth um, there's also there's also um unfortunately without the uh without the the visual element i can't show you the box but there is an actual kist which one of the grandfathers who came um to help share stories brought me that had been found in an old seed shed. Uh, it had been there for ages and he said we could have the box and we, we did it up and the children designed engravings for the lid and it's full of, the, it, there is a visual representation of the kist as well that has stories and remedies attached to them. So when you started the project, um, you you framed this, so you started the project as part to bring together the, the newcomers to this place and people who'd been there for quite a while. Um, what has come out of this project? It might be too early to tell, especially since we all had to move online, but what are some of the benefits that you saw in the community? If you saw some, um, what are some follow on? Um, uh, well, I, yeah, the original project was a few years ago now. So it's had two, uh, it's had sort of two runs, if you like. There are two series of it. The first series um, for a year, uh, a year, maybe a year and a half afterwards was fantastic because I think it gave the children that were involved from the two first primary schools, um, enormous amounts of self-confidence uh, they became much um, better acquainted with the wild plants growing in their area um, they also got to know two or three of the older faces in the village I think that they maybe wouldn't have met and just probably had conversations they wouldn't have had without the project certainly I know other another storyteller who has gone on to work with one of the one of the groups who probably had the most involvement, um, two year groups about two years after the project, and said uh, she was teaching them to do um, tour guiding around a local castle, and she just said I haven't worked with groups like them. It was amazing. They knew what storytelling was. They could apply it. I haven't worked with adult groups that can do that. And I went, oh, those are my two year kissed in time groups. They, I mean, they had fantastic opportunities. Their artwork went on display at the Storytelling Centre in Edinburgh, at the National Museum of Rural Life down in East Kilbride. Uh, it went, a showcase went down to the Ashmolean in Oxford and it went to somewhere else. Oh, the McRobert in Stirling. They all came in, they had openings, they brought their family members, grandparents along to see their art hung up in, in you know, in a venue. Um, 
Yeah, so it was great for the kids. For the older people, I don't know. <laughs> a few more people talk to me. A few more people say hello and remember what I did. Um, I got their stories out there. Um, you know, I think things from recent history that would have been totally overlooked, like uh, Tatty Hawking, which is digging up potatoes, which was a great big seasonal um area of employment in, around here um, became common knowledge as opposed to something that that you know 12 year olds have never heard of and if your grandparents have moved from somewhere totally different you wouldn't be aware that anyone around here over the age of about 55 spent their summers or you know their October holiday tatty hiking and their summers probably two weeks doing the berries up in in Perthshire is quite nearby too and and so there is that awareness of what the older generation have done and I think that's quite important from the point of view of making people um, have more of a connection to different age groups different generations and I, I, I you know and I think the knock-on effect as we've gone through lockdown and things uh, are that those conversations wouldn't have happened naturally but they maybe happened a few years ago. The lockdown conversations, um, the, uh, yeah, we're quite soon after to see the effects. Hopefully I'll be going back into school, uh, schools in October and covering some more of the stories and talking about where they come from. And that will be interesting to see if they've, if they've formed more new connections and, and shared stories in the same way this time. Yeah, that would be very interesting to find out. Great. Um, what were some of the challenges you faced in trying to put together a project like this? Um, right. <laughs> I don't really want to start off with saying funding, but inevitably funding is nearly always the hardest part. And I was incredibly lucky in that I had a, a very small pot of funding that I was awarded to kickstart the project from um, Face, Face and Gale. Um, and then I relied pretty heavily on goodwill and, <laughs> uh, you know, and so the, you know, the head teachers, fight, um, who I think she possibly paid for it out of her own pocket, paid for all the framing to be done for the pictures for the exhibition. Um, she, you know, she found money to get the children along to the opening of the exhibition. Uh, she found tiny pots to pay for some of my sessions in the school. So the, the funding is always really, really difficult. Um, certainly the feedback we got from the exhibitions and the workshops that I ran out with the sort of the core group, because I did take workshops out to, to across Scotland and down to England to talk about the project and, and get other people involved and doing the same thing the schools had done was so enthusiastic it, I mean I literally sold out everywhere it went everyone got really excited um you know they've I've constantly still got the phone now saying ringing people saying please can you come in and do this pro you know um the the herbal medicine project from the kist in time this October so the the interest is there 
but finding the support to create the first thing that inspires the ongoing interest is incredibly difficult. I think the other challenge probably was getting um, some of the older members of the community in to the school. Um, I've worked on similar projects with um, care homes and that's been much easier to organise because everybody's there. So in a way, the problem highlights one of the the other the other the things that, that that's kind of tricky in rural life is that there aren't care homes around here. Uh, care of elderly people has been pretty much either undertaken by relatives or by services that come into your home. And um, it's incredibly sad, but people that do need to go into residential care often have to go a long, long way from where they've grown up, from where their friends are. And then, you know, then from my point of view as a storyteller, I don't have a core older generation group in one place who've maybe known each other um, before out with the care setting. And, and you can't take a, a group of children in to visit. So I think that makes it really quite sad because we, we literally had mobility issues um, and I, I had to do things like um, get one lovely lady who was fortunately my next door neighbour who was in her 90s. Uh, she came out in her garden because her garden backed onto the school playground and chatted to the children through the fence. Um, but they loved her and she was fantastic. She'd been a lollipop lady for years and she wrote poetry and she was a wonderful i loved my my neighbor she was great for something like this but her enthusiasm sort of got over the problem um and and my sheer determination and the fact that the kids thought chatting to somebody through a school fence about a tree that you know they could both see was interesting but but mobility and in a way the the lack of funding in the care the care arena um made it quite difficult as well sounds yeah <laughs> two big challenges there but it sounds like some really interesting and fun memorable ways to overcome some of that i'm sure the children will remember that for a long time great um as it's a storytelling podcast people always expect a story so i wonder if now is the time for you to share a wee story with us that connects into this work that you are continuing to do. I'd love to share a story. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm inclined to tell you one that I feel is a little bit well Kent because I tell this one quite a lot. But, um, you know, if your listeners will bear with me, I, I really would love to tell you about the story I uncovered about St. John's Wort. I won't tell you the story I developed from it because um, it's it's out there. You can, you can find it um, in various places um, on, a, on an album I released, which you can access on the internet on my podcast for free um, and other stuff like that. You can find it. I can share links. But I will share how I discovered it on the project and tie in with it. So St. John's Wort or Hypericum perforatum is a wonderful plant that I really love. It's something that supported me personally through um, dark days because it's got a lovely antidepressant at, um, aspect to it. 
And when I was on the project, I was, as I said, going through all the, the dark vaults, if you like, of this archive of Scottish lore and memories, Tovar and Dalkus, and searching for plants that I loved. I found a story about St John's wort that originated in Killin, a village which is not so far from here and has the same high school as the children I was working with. It was said that there was a, an old woman in Killin who some folk avoided and, and some folk befriended. She had her own peculiar ways and she was basically the, the old wife of Killin. She lived at the edge of the village and she grew quite a lot of plants. There was a young man in the village who regularly went up to see her for various ailments and when he said that he was off to fight in the First World War, she, she gave him a sprig of this yellow plant. You can spot it because if you hold its leaves up to the light, you will see it dotted with red perforations. They glisten and glow scarlet. It's said to be the blood of St John. It bled out of the plant when the devil caught it with his pitchfork. But that's another story I'll let you discover for yourself. But um, she, she gave the young man the sprig of St John's wort and told him to take it if he became injured on the battlefield. He took it away with him and... Indeed, he's said to have taken the plant and come back in, in fine fettle. I went up to Colin as part of the project to talk to um, some people about St. Philin's stones, healing stones that are kept in the water mill there by some beautiful waterfalls. And I asked around to find out if anyone else had heard of the old wife of Colin. It was after the storytelling session that somebody took me to one side and said, my grandfather knew the old wife of Killin. He went up to him just before he left to go and fight in the First World War. She gave him a sprig of the plant you've just told a story about. But your young man took it with him and had to take it. My grandfather was told just to put it into his Bible and press it hold it close to his heart, and it would act as a magical charm. It would protect him from evil. It would protect him from the black dog or depression. It would protect him when he went to war. My grandfather came back from the First World War, hale and hearty, with his sprig of St John's wort still pressed in his Bible. He went on to become an ambulance driver in the Second World War and took those fractured, desiccated elements of plants still pressed between the pages of his Bible with him to the Second World War as an ambulance driver and again returned in good health until the end of his days. He swore that it was the plant that had kept him safe. And I've still got it now. You can't see the plant anymore. It's tiny powdery dust. But I know the page it's on, and I will keep it safe with me as long as I live. It was amazing how the stories joined up. And the story I'm, I'm 
offering to let you seek out for yourself is called Chase the Devil because the folk name of St. John's Wort is Chase the Devil. And one of the things I do when I'm telling stories is I take things like that anecdote and the, or the selection of anecdotes about it that all root to the same woman, the same village. Um, and then when I can't find a traditional tale or a legend to connect that to, I sort of story mend. That's the, the term I came up with. I take the folklore and I piece back in the sometimes very obvious things that make that a proper story. So my, my story, Chase the Devil, about St John's Wort connects into those anecdotes and the black dog becomes quite a presence and we learn why the devil stabbed this poor yellow plant. On the same travel back from Killeen, I found some St John's Wort growing by the hedge and it said that St John's Wort only works as a charm if you find it by accident. And I now have got my own sprig of St John's Wort that I found coming back from that session. And it's still with me. It's not pressed in the Bible. I don't tend to that direction. It's pressed within um, my grandmother's copy of A Scots Kitchen by um, <laughs> Florence Marion McNeil, which seems more appropriate for me. Um, but it's still there and um, it's been keeping me safe on my story tra telling travels ever since. <laughs> Thank you, Amanda. Um, I, I really like that concept of story mending and bringing together bits of folklore, bits of anecdote, and bits of herbal knowledge together. Um, and that's, that's such a great phrase too, story mending. You know yourself as a storyteller. You, I said, you'll know yourself, I'm sorry to, to glitch you. And you'll know yourself as a storyteller that you often get those stories and you go, that's a story, that's crying out for a story, but where is the rest of it? And you kind of fill in the gaps. It's something we do as children and it's something hopefully we continue to do as storytellers. So it's, it's that. <laughs> Thank you. I could talk to you for ages, but we are coming up to our, to the end of our time together, unfortunately. So I just want to end with the question that I ask everyone on this podcast. What gives you hope today? What gives me hope? I think the, the thing that's giving me most hope at the moment is um, that we continue with these stories. I think how enthusiastic people are about... Um, plant stories and how they significantly help us value our natural environment, um, value um, sort of keeping a sustainable approach really gives me hope. I worked with a group yesterday as part of the, it's a little bit of a follow on with the new project handing on with my mum, which is about helping stories, helping us um, value things when maybe the immediate financial worth isn't um, you know isn't uh, obvious and someone said to me the council uh, aren't mowing the verges and it's not about it's not about um, preserving wildlife it's about saving money and we had a lovely conversation about the stories about the plants in that verge and about their uses as me in medicine and they suddenly went it doesn't really matter why then 
mowing the, why they're not mowing the verges as long as they don't. And I said, absolutely. And this guy went from thinking they really should pull the finger out and maybe tidy up this untidy bit of green to thinking that those plants he hadn't spotted before were important. And he went away saying, actually, having spoken to you, now I don't want to mow all of my lawn. Now look what you've gone and done. You're, I'm going to have to go and grow some nettles now just to see if I can make some um, if I can make some nettle tea and it'll cheer me up. And I went, will you? Will you keep me posted and let me know? And he said, yeah, I will. And last night he, he sent me a picture and he said, I'm absolutely not mowing this patch of my lawn anymore. That sort of thing gives me hope. His daughter listening to a story about using nettles changed the way he looked at the wild areas of his garden. And so little by little, I think, how stories help us relate to the environment and create sustainability is, is something that re I really helps, <laughs> really helps cheer me up and, and see the hope in everything. <laughs> Thank you, Amanda, for joining me and for such an interesting conversation. Thanks also to everyone out there who's tuned in to listen to this episode. Please join me again in two weeks' time for another conversation about restoring the earth.